Why not take all of me? Can't you see that I'm no good without you? Take my arms. All right, our third and final segment today. Uh, we're still working on our to-do list. In fact, let me let me start with another to-do list, that of Andy Rooney's. He uh, he listed. <laughs> He listed the following as being my to-do list. You'll find that it's a lot like yours. He said, make bread in the bread maker I bought three years ago and then never used. was on his to-do list. Organize all the stuff in our two-car garage so I can get one car in. (laughs) It's also on his list. I like this one. Watch the television shows I saved on tape to look at later. Uh, learn to program the VCR. Those two go together. Keep everything I'll need for my income tax in one place this year so I'll have it when I want it. His finale is, give a little more thought to my column in advance so I'm not faced with an emergency like this one. <laughs> but by far my favorite on this list comes earlier, uh, He, which is, learn how to touch type, with a parenthesis following saying, This has been on my list for 50 years now, during which time I've written 14 books with three fingers. I thought at this point I should pick up where I left off last week. We just made passing mention of uh, of the death of of Eddie Albert at age 99. Um, I I thought that Eddie Albert, uh, you know, he seems like a sort of a... uh, a minor figure in, in, in showbiz and entertainment. Uh, he's known mainly <laughs> for his role on the television series Green Acres uh, as the urban transplant Oliver Wendell Douglas, backed up as he was by his, uh, his TV wife, Ava Gabor. But his obituary uh, caught my eye because apparently he'd uh, gotten an, an Academy Award nomination for a role in Roman Holiday in 1953. He appeared in the movie version of Oklahoma in 1955. He got another Academy Award nomination for The Heartbreak Kid, a well-regarded 1972 movie. And uh, and he also appeared in The Longest Yard, currently in theaters near you with a remake featuring the god-awful, at least, well, sorry, I think god-awful Adam Sandler. The only one of those movies I've seen was the original uh, Longest Yard. Uh, fellow actors said that uh, whenever he was on screen, you were riveted by his performance. He was a very intuitive, very bright, very well-read man, and he had a lot more going for him than just acting. Turns out that Eddie Albert was a conservationist before that became hip. He instituted a, a campaign against the pesticide DDT, He traveled the world with UNICEF. He helped establish the UN program of uh, Meals for Millions. As a youth, spent time as a trapeze artist uh, in in 1930s Mexico. But most interesting for me, he received a bronze star during World War II for rescuing 142 Marines during World War II's Battle of Tarawa. Of course, uh, publicists are, 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 are notorious for, for puffing up, uh, you know, uh, the credentials of, of the people they represent. But it does sound as though uh, uh, Eddie Albert really was the kind of guy that, uh, that really spent a life, uh, you know, trying to help other people and doing the right thing. And if you would uh, cue it up, Mr. McMillan, I, 
I have to say, it's a pretty cheesy TV theme song, but at the same time, it's somehow engaging. Actually, my producer is refusing to produce the Green Acres theme song, and you know, you know, I think that's correct. Uh, we we don't want to we don't want to belittle this guy. He he apparently did a lot of good stuff, and uh, I'm sure that at some point in a future program, well, we can find a place for a. Uh, for that catchy little ditty. And another kind of surprising story from the obituaries, and we do like to uh, we do like to commemorate the passing of some notable people on this program from time to time because, well, it's just it's just the right thing to do. Um, article from the New York Times: Hamilton Nakai. Uh, passed away in South Africa. Hamilton Nakai was a laborer who became a self-taught surgeon of such skill that Dr. Christian Barnard chose him to assist in the world's first human heart transplant back in 1967. His contribution was kept secret for three decades because he was black and he lived in an apartheid-era South Africa. The story reported in the New York Times was that Mr. Nakai left school at 14, had no formal medical training, and spent five decades working at the University of Cape Town. He was originally hired as a gardener in about 1940 and acquired formidable surgical skills through years of silent observation and covert practice at the university's medical school. In the late 1950s, Mr. Nakai took a job at the medical school where he cleaned lab animal cages. He was quickly recognized for his intelligence, keen powers of observation, and steady hands. He was gradually allowed to become involved in more serious work. He learned to anesthetize animals and eventually to do surgery on them, operating on rabbits, pigs, dogs, and even a giraffe. Although South Africa's apartheid laws forbade blacks from performing surgery on whites, Mr. Nakai's skills were so esteemed that the university quietly looked the other way. Christian Barnard, in an interview quoted in the Daily Telegraph of London uh, uh, last week, said that Hamilton Nakai had better technical skills than I did. He was a better craftsman than me, especially when it came to stitching. He had very good hands. Now, I can tell you from, from, from having been trained in medicine that, that you occasionally find people who are just, you know, like anything else. and. It requires some athleticism, some skill, some, some hand-eye coordination. There are some people that just have a certain gift in the, in the art of, of surgery, and obviously this man was one of them. But among the many, many crimes of, of apartheid in South Africa is the following. It was noted in his obituary that during his years at the university, Mr. Nakai lived in the outskirts of Cape Town in a one-room shack without electricity or running water. And when he retired, he was paid a gardener's pension far less than a lab technician's. I, I am somewhat heartened by the fact that the obituary included a picture of a smiling Hamilton Nakai, taken, a picture taken in 2003 when he received an honorary Master of Science degree in medicine at Cape Town University.
And in a story involving racial injustice uh, much closer to home, I, I am really quite amazed that this, the 1964 murders, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, were somewhat avenged with the conviction of Edgar Ray Killen in Philadelphia, Mississippi. I remember so well at age 11 of this, uh, this case, this murder of civil rights workers that took place in Mississippi. It shocked the nation. It shocked, it shocked me as a kid. I remember being quite, uh, quite upset by what happened to these uh, obviously well-meaning um, kids, young men, uh, down in Mississippi who were just trying to do the right thing and secure voting rights for black people. They were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan, apparently incited to do so by Edgar Ray Killen. I'm reading an article about 10 years ago about this case. It was noted that down in that part of Mississippi, they knew who the mastermind was behind those murders. And a lot of folks just felt that, well, you should just let it go. In fact, there was an extremely annoying uh, editorial uh, proposing that uh, this was vengeance and it wasn't right. and Maybe Edgar Killen should be just, you know, left to live out his uh, his life his, uh, in, in his old age at, at age 80. And uh, I, I certainly cannot agree with uh, that editorial. Killen uh, narrowly uh, dodged conviction back in 1967 when the all-white jury deadlocked 11 to 1 on him, the lone holdout said she could not convict a preacher. Uh, he might get uh, 20 years for the conviction of manslaughter for all uh, three of these murders, and I don't know how those murders can be convictions for manslaughter, but somehow they are. I guess maybe because he wasn't perhaps the person that actually pulled the trigger, even though he uh, organized the attack, the kidnapping and, and, and murders of these men. If he spends the rest of his life in prison, well, that's, 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 that's okay by me. This kind of reminds me of the case of, of Charles Manson and the Tate-LaBianca murders. Apparently, Charlie didn't actually kill anybody at those. He just, he just organized the party that, that did the murders, and that's, that's pretty much the same thing. The, uh, the report on, on the conviction of this man uh, I heard on, on NPR uh, yesterday and uh, came from Melanie Peoples. We, we, I've had a chance to meet Melanie, uh, like her very much, and hope that she can come on this program and, and tell us directly uh, uh, what happened down there in, in Mississippi and as regards these, um, these convictions. All right, a couple of final items in today's program. Uh, the Downing Street Memo maybe, maybe is, is getting some legs. Uh, John Conyers uh, had some hearings on the matter. I heard that... Uh, uh, from D Jim Eugenio, our friend in Los Angeles, that these were just breaking records on C-SPAN. Everybody wanted to see these hearings. I, I'm, I saw one article that said, uh, liberals, liberals are complaining about Downing Street memo, uh, Democrats, uh, silent. We, we have people like Los Angeles Times editorial and opinion editor Michael Kinsley writing that the memo's not proof that Bush had decided on war. <sighs> prompting Joe Connison of Salon.com to write that Kinsley's response to the memo is just more proof that the leading lights of the Washington press corps are more embarrassed than the White House is by the revelations in the Downing Street memo. 
Connison said, mooing in plaintive chorus, the Beltway herd insists that the July 23, 2002 memo wasn't news, which would be true if the absence of news were defined only by their refusal to report it. We will, I promise, continue to follow the story of the Downing Street memo. Or, or actually memos. I've seen four quoted in the press, but uh, we don't have time today. Final item, New York Times, June 14, 2005. In a report released last week, re- researchers estimated that more than half of Americans would develop mental disorders in their lives, raising questions about where mental health ends and illness begins. In fact, the article notes, psychiatrists have no good answers and the boundary between mental illness and normal mental struggles has become a battle line dividing the profession into two viscerally opposed camps. On the one side, doctors who say the definition of mental illness should be broad enough to include mild conditions, which we've talked in this show before. Apparently, to some psychiatrists, includes things like coffee nerves. And on the other hand, experts to say the current definitions should be tightened to ensure that limited resources go to those who need them most and to preserve the profession's credibility with a public that often scoffs at claims that large number of Americans have mental disorders. And yes, the DSM-5, they say, is going to be due out in 2010 or 2011. Dr. Stuart Kirk, professor of social welfare at UCLA, has been critical of the DSM, has noted that uh, under the current diagnostic guidelines, The following would qualify as substance abuse disorder. A college student who every month or so drinks too much beer on Sunday night and misses his chemistry class at 8 a.m. Monday morning, which lowers his grade. Or a middle-aged professional who smokes a joint now and then and drives to a restaurant, thus risking arrest. Though perhaps representing bad judgment, Dr. Kirk wrote in an email message, these cases would not be seen by most people as valid examples of mental illness, and they shouldn't be because they represent no underlying internal pathological mental state. But I'll just lay money right now. That's going to be in the DSM-5 as some sort of substance abuse disorder. And on that note, here's a choice I might want to recommend for the DSM-5, a compulsion to include normal human behavior as a mental illness in a diagnostic and statistical manual. And on that note, we must end today's program. Our thanks to Dr. Andy Jones. And um, you should, as always, stay tuned for Todd Urich to follow. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next Thursday at 5. So why not take all of me
Why not take all of me? Can't you see that I'm no good without you? Take my arms, I won't lose them. Take my lips, I'll never use them. Your goodbye left me with eyes to cry. No good without you You took part that once was my heart So why not take all 